Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Stephanie Mills, Tasmanian Branch Professional Education Coordinator and Paediatric Speech Pathologist with the Department of Education in Hobart. I work with many kids with varying presentations, however, paediatric fluency would be one of my favourite areas to work in due to the remarkable change that intervention can make and the lengthy therapeutic relationship that you get to have with the child and their caregiver. I am so honoured to be chatting to Professor Mark Onslow today. Mark is Foundation Director of the Australian Stuttering Research Centre and almost needs no introduction given his incredible contribution to the area of paediatric stuttering in Australia over many years. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. Pleasure. So, Mark, I know you're involved in many areas of research However, I read with interest one of your recent research papers um, in the most recent issue of the International Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. Um, so that was about the psychological characteristics of early stuttering. And I'm so keen to explore it a bit with you today. So Let's, let's. Let's. Um, so Mark, to start, um, it would be great if you could chat a bit about the study and the research questions that you are hoping to answer? Sure. Um, what I'll talk about is the study, which is important, uh, and also the context in which it appears. Because for the evidence-based practitioner who reads obviously clinically important stuff like this, the, the paper itself is important, but equally more important what more important is the overall context in which the paper appears because there are many other papers dealing with these topics. So I'll talk about those two things if that sounds like it's a good idea. That sounds great. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, by way of broad background, the, um, the psychological characteristics of children who stutter during the first years of life is of a a great deal of research interest, and to clinicians it's a great deal of research interest, particularly, as you said, early intervention is an excellent thing to do, and virtually everybody now thinks that the best way to deal with early stuttering clinically is to move sooner rather than later and not wait around until kids are much older. So um, in that context... Um, we did we did a, a study involving um, 427 children 
who over a number of years had participated in clinical research with us. And that research uh, dealt with the, um, the Lidcom program and the Westmead program. And um, we asked questions broadly about whether those children and their parents had anything unusual about their clinical psychology. And to cut short a long story, the answer is no. Very interesting. <laughs> mm. the, yeah, the, the children, um, the, the children um, had no sign of anything unusual about their psychology or their temperaments, and the parents had nothing overall interesting about their anxiety or their their stress levels, and that's really important for it's an important paper for clinicians to read and decide whether they accept it or not, because like all research, of course, it has strengths and limitations. But it's also important to consider the paper in the context of an, a larger body of literature that shows, gosh heck, um, some research does find that children who have early stuttering have unusual psychological characteristics, particularly temperament. Mm. Would they be some of those models around the cause of stuttering um, being multifactorial? That's, one, that's, so that's yeah. one source of interest in this line of research that uh, there are many, theory, that there's a, a broad category of theories about how stuttering begins called the demands and capacities model. Um, and those, that category of theory, etiological theory, says that stuttering begins early in life because of an interaction of a number of factors from the environment and from within the child. And those models specify uh, particularly temperament of the child as being involved. And not surprisingly, um, people who like those kinds of theories are terribly interested in finding out whether there's any psychology, psychological or temperamental anomalies associated with early stuttering. And in the bigger picture, just the average clinician who looks at people who stutter would obviously say, look, there's obviously something going on with neural, with neural speech processing. That looks to me a heck of a lot like um, um, it's a, a disorder of, um, uh, of something to do with, the, with, with motor speech function in stuttering. But a clinician will also, the, the average clinician who, who interacts with adults who stutter will discover, as researchers have discovered, that they could quite often be anxious, socially anxious. And um, therefore, those clinicians might think, all right, adults who stutter uh, quite, are quite likely to be socially anxious when they come to the clinic. I wonder if that's a clue to what might be involved in the cause of the disorder. Mm. It, so, it makes sense that people have thought that way, doesn't it? Um, it does. But it's a bit of a, and it's been that question of, 
that chicken and egg question a little mm. bit, I understand. And yeah, so that, that line of reasoning can get you into trouble <laughs> because sometimes it's good. Yes, sometimes um, clues to the cause of things can be, sound, can be found in their effects and sometimes it will mislead you. Um, <laughs> That's right. But, yeah. but, but um, what we have, um, we have this study by Veronica Park and her colleagues, one of which was me, who says, no, there's nothing unusual about the psychology of kids or their parents. But some other papers have said, hang on, there is. And um, so we, so the evidence-based practitioner has this, I would describe it like this, there's a torrent of research showing that adults who stutter and come to the clinic will quite likely have clinically significant social anxiety, a torrent. But there's a trickle of research showing that preschool children who stutter have something unusual about their psychological structure, particularly their temperament. We have a trickle in the early years of life and a torrent in the in the the adolescent and yeah. adult oh, years yes. of life. And um, one obvious interpretation of that is that um, psychological effects are based more often than not uh, uh, an effect of the disorder rather than being involved in the cause of the disorder. Yes, and there's a number of papers um, that have had similar findings to what your paper, um, your current papers hmm. found um, that there isn't un anything unusual about the psychological profiles of children who yeah. stutter. And I was certainly trained um, with that research hmm. um, being yeah. taught to us. Um, so um, I was wondering, do you feel it's pretty based on this current research findings that there isn't anything unusual about um, the kids in terms of anxiety or temperament, would it be pretty okay to say as a clinician to parents, reassure them that it's not because of anything psychological that their child's stuttering? Oh, yes. I think it's, um, I think if you told a parent, look, um, the cause of stuttering is nothing to do with, with psychology, it's nothing to do with the way you're interacting with the child. It's yep. nothing to do with um, how you're treating the child. That would be perfectly appropriate and even called for considering mm -hmm. a body, body of evidence that indicates that, adult, that parents tend to be guilty when their children have begun to stutter because of the lingering influence of a, a range of theories that are now outdated. But hold the presses hold the presses because it's, unfortunately, it's not that simple because um, if, you, if you follow the line of reasoning you were just exposing, you'd say, okay, um, some kids are going to be anxious. That's obvious. Some kids are going to have an anxiety-prone temperament. Mm -hmm. Some kids begin to stutter. Therefore, some kids who begin to stutter will have an anxiety-prone temperament. That um, makes sense. Yeah, yes. it, it, it seems to me to make sense. Therefore, um, there are two 
there are two um, ways of taking that in the literature. One way, one extreme is to say, well, obviously, duh, um, if you decide to treat stuttering in, a, in early childhood and a child has obviously some unusual temperament, you take account of that in delivering the treatment, just mm -hmm. like you take account of any other variable. Any other, yeah. any other comorbidity that we often see in a you know, right. messy clinical practice world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the competent clinician will talk to a parent and child and think, right, and write in the file, okay, this parent is such and such, this child is such and such, we've got to watch out for this. Or yeah. this parent is just like this, this child is just like that. It looks like it's all going to be straight sailing. The other extreme view, which you will see in the literature, is that um, because some children might be temperamentally anxious, you should, um, a clinician should um, do a detailed assessment of a child's temperament in order to guide treatment choices. Okay. Yep. That's the other extreme. Okay, but that's quite different to what you're saying, isn't it? That's right. Yep. Uh, it's, it's quite different from my view. Yes. But it's, it's not my job to tell clinicians how to apply the results of research to, to clinical practice. But there are the two extremes of it. And um, you'll see in um, an exchange on the matter that I published recently with Ellen Kelly from the United States. You'll see her contrasting view that she presented for people to consider that, look, you've got, before you can possibly um, plan uh, a treatment for stuttering, you have to carefully do an assessment of the child's um, temperament, mm -hmm. along with language skills and a few other things, and it takes a long time. Um, if, you yeah. ask my, if you ask my opinion, I don't agree with that, um, but thousands don't agree with me. Um, but I tell, um, when I talk to this matter about clinicians at the Australian Stuttering Research Centre, I, I adopt the common sense extreme Look, um, there are a whole pile of variables that will uh, that will be important to take take account of when you decide to get rid of early stuttering, uh, and you've got to do that. But hold the presses; it's not that simple because no. <laughs> because um, um, one of the reasons we did this study was that if if there is any evidence that children or their parents are unusual in psychological terms, that could influence the actual treatment that you choose. For example, um, there's not much argument these days, at least according to a recent Cochrane review, that the Lincoln program has the strongest evidence to support it. Um, and um, that's good, but you can't go giving the Lincoln program the day after stuttering begins, if you want to. Fortunately, there are treatments being developed where um, it is possible now to think about giving a treatment to stuttering very, to kids who stutter very shortly after it begins, if you so decide to do so as a clinician.
Well, so, that's an excellent option, seeing as though so many of us are keen to get started as young as yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yes. Um, and if you should decide, um, if, if you're an evidence-based pr practitioner and you think on balance, my interpretation of the literature about the impact of early stuttering and its potential psychological consequences is that I'm going to start treating this kid um, the week after stuttering began. If that's your decision, your choice of treatments opens widely before you. And um, um, some children might be better suited to that, to, to a treatment that doesn't require, uh, that is not the Lidcombe program. Yeah, so it doesn't require that structured yeah. sort of treatment and, and in activity. Fact, and in fact, doesn't require the child to do anything. Yes. There what are, sort of treatment are, would that be, Mark, just for clinicians? For example, restart DCM treatment does not require the child to do anything. At least it shouldn't. Um, yes. Whether it does or it doesn't, um, don't take this the wrong way, but it's not clear from reading the man manual whether the child actually has to do anything. But in, okay. in, in yeah. principle, there are a number of variables um, that are incorporated in treatments like Restart DCM and a similar treatment, Palin PCI, where the child doesn't have to do anything. For example, um, increasing your interturn pause latency. You can do that to a child mm -hmm. um, without having the child having to do anything. And that's and more, you, sorry to okay. mark, but that's more around, yeah, the adult modi modifying the environment, um, yep, but yep. still has the parent or the caregiver at the centre of treatment, doesn't it? Yes, so, it certainly does. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And if you decide that, if you should decide, look, for this child, I'm going to try doing this, getting the parents to do this. Um, you can do it a lot earlier uh, if, you, if you decide um, with any particular family, look, there are psychological variables going on here that uh, I don't think, um, I, don't, I don't think I want to try the Lidcombe program should you decide that, um, this information from this paper is going to be enormously useful. That's right. And thinking a little bit about um, the research you did, so you looked not only, as you said, at the psychological characteristics of the preschoolers who stutter, but also you looked at the psychological characteristics of the parents. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit interested in what um, whether measures that you took to, to work that out? Well, I shall read them to you from the paper. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, for, for, for the parents, we um, used the depression, anxiety and stress scale, the DAS-21, and uh, which is a pretty standard measure of, um, of parent, of, of stress and anxiety. Okay. And we used a thing called the Recent Life Changes Questionnaire, which uh, indicates whether um, people are in a, 
a state of uh, their, their life where they might be vulnerable to particular stress. And we developed, uh, we, we, we applied uh, the International Personality Disorders Examination Questionnaire, the IPTEC, which is a first stage screener for personality disorders. I emphasise that first stage first screener. Stage. Okay, yeah. yes, uh, I did notice that you were very much calling it a screener in the paper. Um, and you did hmm. find, I noticed, um, a little bit, you found something from both of those two measures um, that was a bit un, unexpected perhaps um, hmm. and might need some future research. So could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the, um, the, 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 the parents on balance with the recent Life Changes questionnaire there's reason to believe that a, a third of the parents came at a t they they presented to the clinic at a time when um, they were had a particularly stressful time of their their lives. They were at they were at a, a moderate to high risk of high stress levels occurring, um, and um, that opens the door to two possible speculations. The first is that parent risk for high stress levels is somehow uh, involved with the cause of causality of stuttering. Um, and the second speculation is that um, life stresses were instrumental in prompting the parents to bring their clinics to the preschool, to their, their children to the clinic. Mm -hmm. um, possibly with the onset of stuttering exacerbating those stresses. Um, we speculated that uh, it's too far-fetched to imagine that parent life stresses were involved in the causality of the disorder, but we thought it was much more credible to think that, um, uh, that the stress associated with, with the onset of stuttering in the children prompted them to come to clinic. Um, and that's pretty credible because... There's an overwhelming body of literature showing that uh, the onset of stuttering is stressful for parents. It's stressful for children. Yeah. Uh, it peers notice that it happens in in children, and there's even direct evidence that um, that the children who begin to stutter experience direct negative peer reactions from their peers. So. Um, so it's not, it's intuitive that something associated with stress in children and parents might um, contribute, might, might tip parents a bit over the balance if they're feeling, if their lives are a bit stressful. Gosh, my child just started to stutter. Oh my gosh, that, I'm going to a speech pathologist immediately. That might happen more often for parents that are a bit, um, feeling under the weather than any other parents. Mm, very interesting because I think in clinical practice I have probably observed that more often than not there's there's a lot of stress. You know, they would be experiencing moderate to high life mm. stresses. Like sometimes it's, you know, just had a relationship breakup. Um, you know, yep. there's other siblings with medical concerns, but they seem to be, yeah, coming at a time when there's quite a lot else going on in the family. Yep. Um, 
as well as the child stuttering. And um, yeah, and I did find that an interesting finding. Yeah, and um, um, and Steph, when when you observe that in the clinic, here's a family that's under considerable stress. Yes, and their child is stuttering, which is another stressor that has to be accommodated carefully when you administer the treatment to a child. It 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 gives yeah. all sorts of it, it gives you all sorts of clues about how you should tailor the treatment, when you should do the treatment, how you should carefully introduce the treatment, and how you should check up on how well the treatment's going. Mm. Absolutely. And I think um, an important consideration I've had being in working mainly with the school age population is often they have passed that ideal early intervention window um, when they're getting referred to you. So, you know, you've got um, for something like the Lidcom program, which is um, what I use, um, you've got that best chance once, you know, for therapy to be most effective and those contingencies to make the most impact. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it is having that really upfront conversation. And if there's a lot of life stresses or other things that are going to impact their ability to take on therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, it's might be saying, we don't want to give it a shot now and have to give it up and try it again. Cause the second time we don't know if it's going to work as well. Yeah. And the, the, that serious conversation has to be given in the context of how severe the other life stressors are. Yes. Like it's true, but early stuttering, you have to say to parents, look, we need to deal with this sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and the effects of the disorder are not innocuous later in life. In fact, they're quite serious. Um, yes. But, but um, you have to weigh those up against the other stress, stresses that are present in, in the, that might be present in parents' lives. Uh, yeah, and I was um, quite surprised that um, with that personality screening dis- um, mm-hmm. questionnaire, um, that half of the parents mm-hmm. in your study, they failed the screening for anacastic mm-hmm. personality personality disorder, bit of a one to get your tongue around, um, and that, that indicated that they needed further psychological assessment. So did you and your team come up with any possible explanations for this finding? Yeah, yeah. Um, any researcher reading this paper wouldn't be surprised because um, it's been established previously that um, stuttering is associated with uh a range of personality disorders, mm-hmm. and um, the, that personality disorder uh, that you have trouble pronouncing along with everyone else is basically a perfectionism. Okay. And, and a, a number of other research papers have associated perfectionism as a personality trait with stuttering. So it's no big surprise uh, and it's intuitive that parents who might be uh, have a perfectionistic tendency um, might be more inclined to bring their children to a clinic for treatment, as these kids were. Um, add to that that um, 
this kind of research has the inevitable bias that you have parents with a higher level of education signing up for the research. Mm-hmm. Um, in this paper, the uh, the parents had an, an average of um, of forty percent of them had uh, a bachelor's degree, but according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, twenty percent of Australians have a bachelor's degree. So you have you have highly educated parents um, coming to the clinic and signing up for the research, and you have potentially a population tendency um, because the parents of children who stutter are more likely themselves to have stuttered yes. than parents of other children. So they're more likely to have a tendency towards perfectionism and boom, boom, you use a, should I say, terribly clunky first-stage screener <laughs> for personality disorders and you come up with the finding that many of them fail. No researcher, okay. no researcher is going to be surprised at that. Yeah. And I should say no evidence-based practitioner is going to put more faith in it until it's been replicated. Um, That's right. So that would be a... You mentioned a future yeah. direction for future studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, evidence-based practitioners would say, oh, gee, got to, you know, mm, that's interesting. I'll watch out and see if someone independently replicates that because one of the fundamental rules applying to science and therefore the clinical application of science is that don't believe anything until it's been replicated independently but again um again th- that finding is more in the domain of um well the i would like to believe that the the competent evidence-based practitioner after a 10-minute conversation with parents would pick up any personality traits that might impact on how you're going to do a treatment one of them would be perf- perfectionism to be sure. Yes. Uh, and uh, you mentioned you like the Lincoln program. I happen to also. Um, <laughs> but if you're going to do the Lincoln program with parents that have any perfectionistic trend, you're going to have to say, well, hang on, let's just make sure they do this right because that's one way the Lincoln program can go wrong. If there's a concrete perfectionistic uh, overreaction to the to applying the treatment. It's going to go pear shaped in about two hours. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I haven't thought of linking mm. those two things together before, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. Yeah, 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 you have yeah, you have a thirty second conversation with the parent, and then after two minutes, you're thinking, yeah, right, okay, this parent's going to do any treatment brilliantly. And they're going to understand everything. Or you might be thinking, hang on, there's some warning bells about this parent. I'm going to have to watch out. Absolutely. Well, I think that's really interesting that you looked at the parents as well as, as the children for your research. Um, yeah. It's added a, an area that um, clinicians can mm. um, consider and watch for future studies in the future. <laughs> yeah, and I do think you nailed it perfectly that um, it's appropriate to tell parents that um, 
that um, you did nothing. There's nothing about you or psychology that is responsible for the the, the onset for, for this happening. Um, I've seen it a hundred times uh, last year, and then the parent will inevitably say, well, what does cause the disorder? And then that puts the evidence-based clinician on the spot, to say the least. That's right. And what, you know, what I understand um, and what I say to parents is we don't fully understand what causes it and that we know it is a speech motor processing problem and that's all we can really say with certainty. <laughs> would yeah. you agree, Mark? Uh, well, I would and I wouldn't. Um, some parents, you would say, we don't really understand might not be the right message. Like after you've had that conversation with a parent, you'll think, okay, some parents, you don't want to introduce the, the idea, I don't know much about the cause of stuttering because it, depending on how you view it, it can be true or it might not be true. In one sense, we don't fully understand the cause of stuttering. But on the other the other, the other hand, some parents, it might be appropriate to say, well, yes, we do fully understand that, um, that stuttering is a hereditary problem. Genetics is involved and it, it um, somehow involves neural processing of speech. Um, but we are absolutely certain that it is a physical problem. Um, some parents, it might be appropriate to say, we just don't know the cause of stuttering. Other parents, it might be appropriate to say, yeah, look, we know absolutely certainly it's a physical problem and any psychological problems appear to have an impact after stuttering begins, which is why I'm so keen to talk about why we need to deal with this sooner rather than later. So I... I, I yeah. <laughs> you asked a question to which there's no answer. Do I agree with I don't? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you'd say to the parents, look, we just don't know. Other times you'd say, yes, look, we do know. I think that that's a really good point. Like, you know, the lack of evidence in some areas doesn't mean we mm. don't have really good evidence in others. So the paper with Veronica Park and your team, Mark, um, I think it's, added more information to the research we had to suggest that stuttering really is linked most with anxiety in the later childhood, adolescent and adult years, um, and not just anxiety, but some psychological problems, um, which we really would like to avoid with early intervention. And I think that um, your paper is going to give clinicians some confidence to make that um, known to parents and reassure them and hopefully get them on board for intervention in the preschool or the school age um, range. So I think that probably brings us to the end of our discussion today. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Mark? No, no, I think you've summarised it pretty well. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I'd just like to say um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I think that um, 
many of our listeners would like to thank you for your unrivaled contribution to the speech pathology profession in Australia, as I would. Um, you've had so many years in the field of paediatric stuttering and adult stuttering, and you're such a guru in this area, and I really feel honoured to chat with you today. That's so kind. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. We will be back with another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.